the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. May God bless the reading of the word, and now the teaching of it. Yes, we do. We have King's Kids today, so if you're a King's Kid, you can head on back. And we also have Spanish translation. You could see the number on the screen if it's still there, which it is. And it's great to be back, and I'm so excited to jump into Hebrews again. Now, Hebrews chapter 11 is all about faith. <clears throat> all about these men of faith, starting all the way back with Abel, then to Enoch, then to Noah. And then we heard about Abraham, and now we're going to hear about him again in chapter 11, verse 17 to 19. So I'm going to read that, and then we'll jump in. So by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. And we just read the full story, or Wayne just read the full story in Genesis. And it's a very, very difficult story to swallow, for sure. But we're, to jump, I guess, off topic for a second, to lead into the sermon, I don't know how many of you are actually excited about next Sunday, but I'm pretty excited, not just because we're going to talk about faith again, but also we have the beginning of the football season. I hate to admit it, but I do like to enjoy some NFL football. Many people ask me what my team is, and of course, from a child, I was a Cowboys fan. And, um, but I love watching any football. I love watching all teams. I do like the Eagles. I do like the Giants. I like them all. But the reason why is because of the phrase, any given Sunday. You've heard about that. It refers to any football team being able to defeat any other team in the league on any given Sunday. Now, this is because of the skill and athleticism at that level makes it so unpredictable on what's going to happen. But oftentimes, what really makes the difference between an underdog team to defeat a better team is when their quarterback has a great game. If he's what we call a clutch quarterback, he comes through when he and the team needs it the most. When the victory is on the line, they need a score. The clutch QB is the one who usually makes it happen. Now, clutch means that when you're in that critical situation, when the outcome of the game is at stake, that player rises to the occasion and plays their very best. According to CBS Sports, Patrick Mahomes, the QB of the Kansas City Chiefs, is the picture-perfect clutch QB. He leads all current starting quarterbacks in virtually every clutch category. He's converted on 59% of potential game-tying or go-ahead drives in the fourth quarter or overtime drives 
in his regular season career. Now that's the best in the league. Now don't get me wrong, he may not come back and win every game, but when it's needed the most, he comes back most of the time. Now, in the Christian life, there are times where we have to be clutch and rise to the occasion above any other time. Now, we always have to be that way as Christians, but there are certain times when we have to step up in a greater way than we ever had before. Now, again, this could be as easy, as simple as somebody asking you out of the blue, maybe somebody that you never thought was going to talk to you about your faith. Hey, you're a Christian. I got a question for you. How do you explain all the evil if God is over everything? How come Jesus had to die? Isn't that domestic child abuse of a, of, of a father giving his son? Or maybe some other question. I know many of you could probably come up and think of an answer. But there are some times when you do get a little knocked off guard and you have to take that. You got to sort of internalize it and either step back and bail out or step up and give it your best shot. Now, being a clutch Christian is not necessarily revealed in how much theology, you know, or how many good works you do, but it has everything to do with your faith in God, to step up in the time of need. Now, as we've read here in Hebrews, the very first verse of chapter 11 lays it out. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Being sure in what you hope for, and you're convicted even though you can't see it, and it causes you to move. Down in verse 6, it says, if we don't have this faith, it's impossible. The Bible doesn't use this word many times, but here he uses it. It's impossible to please God without faith. Now, I believe there's no greater need for faith. There's no greater need to be clutch than when you are being tested or tried by God. This is the time when your faith is needed the most. Now you may be asking yourself, why does God do this? Why does he test? We're, we're all familiar with the concept of testing. Those of us that have children, we test our children's knowledge, maybe on the Bible, what they learned at school. We test our employees, or if you're an employee, you, you've been tested with different work scenarios, how you're going to handle problems that arise or issues. I'm sure you've all called a, a, a company on the phone and they say this call is going to be recorded. And the reason why is because one of the reasons is they're testing that employee. They want to hear how they're going to handle it when you try to stump them with, their quest, with your questions. Or maybe you get in the flesh one day, what are you doing? You know, they want, they, want you, they want to respond. They want you to respond. They want their employees to respond the right way. So they test them with these things. Testing shows a lot. It reveals a lot. And this is why the Christian, as long as he is breathing, will always have to endure tests from God. God tests you, not in a negative way, because test and tempt are actually the same word in the Bible. God will never tempt you to sin. 
But he will test you in a positive sense to prepare you, to refine you, and to bring out his will in your life and in other lives. God uses his people to build for his kingdom. He doesn't do it just supernaturally. He does it through his people. In in order for those people to be prepared to be those kingdom warriors, they must be tested and tested and tested. Testing reveals the authenticity of your faith. Is it real? Well, we'll find out when you've been tested. I don't know if I've shared this before, but I remember being in Army basic training. We were tested almost every morning in the beginning. The drill sergeant would quietly enter the barracks at about 4.45. We got up at 5. And he would then begin slamming the, the lids of garbage cans down the hallway. Bing! And everybody would just, the first couple times it happened, we, you know, it was chaotic. He would do that while yelling and screaming, usually just before he wung them down the hallway. And if he was in a bad mood, he would open fire with his M16 machine gun using blanks, of course. But that really, really prepared us. That's what we needed if we were to be soldiers. Now, we went out for field training or bivouac, whatever you want to call it. And I remember them firing live rounds during that field training as we low crawled in the mud under barbed wire. But those, those, those times in the barracks prepared us for that time in training. And of course, that time in training then prepares us for the real battle. The experience gives us the faith to move forward when the battle gets hot. Now, there's no better example in all of Scripture of a man being tested than Abraham. God chose Abraham. And this was actually the very first test that Abraham had to endure. In Genesis 12, 1-3, God says to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Excuse me, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Boom. Abraham passed the first test. He left. When he was called, it says in, um, in verses uh, 8 to 10, here we, in our book, in our uh, chapter that we're in, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, he obeyed by going out to the place which he was to receive an inheritance. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. Now, in case you don't know, when Abraham was first called, he was 75 years old. Just to give you a little bit of a timeline in his life, he was 86 when Ishmael was born, who wasn't the promised child. He was 99 when God gave him the covenant of circumcision in Genesis 17. And he was 100 years old at the birth of Isaac. But at roughly 115 to 120 years, uh, years old, his faith was put to the ultimate test. The test which we read in our text today. Why did God wait so long for this severe test? Could you imagine if when Abraham was first called when he was 75 years old? Could you imagine if he gave him Isaac then as a child and then after one year said, I want you to give up your son? Abraham would have certainly failed. 
God hadn't completed the working of faith in Abraham for that test yet. You see, we can have faith, but it lays dormant because of our sinful flesh. It lays dormant until we're poked with that trial or we're poked with that test. And that's what brings our faith to life. We see in, this, in the same chapter that Abraham was called. Okay, He was called in Genesis 12. Down towards the end of the chapter, he fails his very first test. He becomes weak. He becomes scared. Wow, I'm going out. I'm being called by God. Again, we, we talked about this before. He lied to Pharaoh, or actually, uh, yeah, to Pharaoh at this time, twisting the truth, telling Pharaoh that Sarah was his half, or it was his um, sister, when she, and in fact, it was his half-sister. He held back that she was his wife as well. God tested him. He failed. Again, in chapter 20, in the same area, he lied to Abimelech, the king of Gerar. You would thought he would have learned by then, Sarah's my sister. Then God visits Abimelech in a dream in Genesis 20 and says, you're a dead man. That will wake you up in the middle of the night. Why, Lord? Because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is married. God remained faithful and patient with Abraham despite him failing the test. I want you to remember that. God does not give up on you. He doesn't give up on his people. He will complete the work. The biggest, I think, one of the biggest failures is Ishmael, right? He's, he received the promise from God, and then nothing's happening. So him and Sarah come up with a great brainiac thing, and they say, let's get Hagar and let's have her bear a child. And what do you know? It's a boy. This must be the Lord. No, that wasn't it. He was a child of the flesh. And you even note in our verse, in verse 17 of our text, Isaac's called Abraham's only begotten son. Only begotten? No, he, he has Ishmael. No, we're talking about the child, of the, the child that was miraculously born of the promise. God didn't even consider Ishmael as his son. He blessed him, but it had nothing to do with Isaac and the seed that would come through his line, which is the Messiah. Now, of course, God fulfilled his promise when Sarah miraculously conceived at 90 years old. And lo and behold, the promised child, Isaac, was born. Now, Abraham must have thought, well, I have reached the pinnacle of my relationship with God. God came through. He's been helping me through my failures. He finally has given me a son, a biological son, a miracle. However, it was just the beginning. God still had work to do not only with Abraham, but in Abraham. So he gives Abe the ultimate test. And from God's perspective, this would be the end all be all. If he passed this test, no more tests would be necessary. This would be the one that would truly reveal, not just to, to it wasn't that God was like, I wonder what Abraham's going to do. But God is a righteous and just God. So he gave Abraham this test, not so much for himself to prove whether Abraham was called, but also to prove to Abraham and to everyone else who Abraham was. He was, in fact, 
that, that man that God was going to use to do what he said, to multiply his descendants, Abraham's descendants will be the only descendants at some point in history. In the new creation, it will just be the Abrahamic descendants in Christ. And so this was that one true test. Give up or really offer up your only begotten son. Now, Isaac, of course, was a biological child. It was the, he was the miracle child. It was his wife, Sarah's only son, only child. It was the boy she always wanted, but could never have. He was the child who took away her shame and embarrassment because during that time, it was a big deal if a woman couldn't bear a child. And then in Genesis 18, God appears to both Abraham and Sarah, promises the son, and they both laugh. When they, Are you kidding me? This is not on our radar. A hundred years old and 90 year old couple getting together and bringing forth a child. And they laughed at God. So that's why his name is Isaac, which means laughter. However, the one that they waited for, the one that God promised, the one gift that they were most thankful for in an instant from one word from the Lord was about to be gone. Here's a brand new Ferrari, my son. It's in the driveway. Now take it and drive it into the lake. You pray for the Lord to open your womb. Imagine, he answers. You become pregnant. The baby's born. The Lord says, give it up for adoption. Of course, these comparisons don't even come close to what Abe had to do. He wasn't sacrificing his stellar horse or even giving Isaac up for adoption. He was to take his son's life. Think about that. You see, oftentimes when God blesses, soon after will come the test. I can attest to this. When I got converted, I was so excited. I was, you know, my marriage was in shambles. I got converted. I went back to my wife and she was like, no. And the testing began. This was, a, this was of course, like six months ago. But it wasn't recently. No, this was 20 some years ago. But that's the way God does it. He blesses and then tests. Blesses and then tests. We see it after the beauty and the miracle of creation. God gives Adam all he could ever want. Dominion over all the creatures. Then the test is given. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Abe was given this amazing gift and then had to offer him as a burnt offering. Now this isn't a normal offering. A burnt offering had to first be slayed and then burnt until nothing was left. Imagine the horror of thinking this through. Imagine your 17 to 25-year-old son, uh, which most historians, including Josephus and many theologians agree, Isaac had to be between that age. Imagine him dying at your own hand, and it's all because the God who miraculously gave him to you is now calling you to offer him up as a sacrifice. And this is the beauty of Abraham. Because of those little tests, because of his relationship with God, because he knew who the God that he served was, he didn't have a knee-jerk reaction. He didn't have to calm himself down. At least we don't see that in the scriptures. He didn't flip out. He didn't flip tables. 
He didn't cry, why? This isn't fair. I did all this for God, and now he's doing this to me. Nope. He didn't even deny God. Instead, he thought and he considered. Not only did he consider the faithfulness of God who called him and gave him the promise, but he considered the almighty power of this God. This isn't some mighty, little case God, some mighty God. This is almighty, uppercase God. There is nothing outside of his power. Nothing is impossible for him. So Abraham, with his face like flint, like stone, unchangeable, he moves towards his mission. He trusted God. And in 19 here in our chapter, it says, he considered that God was able even to raise people from the dead. Now, I'm sure he thought of Sarah's capacity to have a child at 90 in the first place. This was, in fact, already life from the dead. Sarah's womb was dead. Biologically impossible. And God made it alive. Abraham believed and had faith in God's ability. He obeyed despite being presented with the most difficult test of his life. But he was done trusting in himself. He settled the issue. And that's what we have to do. We have to settle the issue that we are going to trust God no matter what. Not in our own strength, but because of who God is. And we, like Abraham, need to head to that mountain. Abraham said, as we read before, to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there. We will worship and we will return to you. Notice, we will worship and we will return to you. His faith was already being activated. We will return to you. Then in Genesis 22, 7 and 8, Isaac speaks to Abraham. Behold, we read this. Behold the fire in the wood, Dad. A little problem here. Where's the lamb? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So they both went together. Isaac trusting his father. And then they came to that place where God told him to go. And this is where it probably got really, really difficult. He builds the altar, he arranges arranges the wood, and then he binds his son to the wood. He lays him on the altar. Now, note, side note here, it seems that Isaac laid there submissive. I'll tell you right now, I can't hold down my 17-year-old son, at least not without feeling sore the next day. He was a strong boy. If, in fact, he was the age that everybody says he was, He could have overpowered his father. He could have said, Dad, uh, let's find Ishmael. (laughs) You remember him? (laughs) You know, he's really not the guy. You know, how about him? Why why me? I'm I'm the, the guy you told me. I'm the chosen one, right? Abraham stretches out his hand. He takes the knife to slay his son. And then the angel of the Lord calls and says, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here am I. Now, I don't know it, but at this very point, I don't know if Abe knew this or what, but God knew that the testing of Abraham's faith as he brought that knife up and he was about to do what God called him to do, the most, in his mind, the most contradictory thing probably he could ever think of, that God's supposed to bless the world through the person I'm killing right now. 
He shut down his emotions. How? I don't know. But God then tells him, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, I indeed will greatly bless you. So Abraham passes the test with great faith when he needed it the most. Now, interestingly enough, the verb offered is in the perfect tense to indicate that this was an accomplished act. So in Abraham's mind, he already offered his son to God and was simply in the process of going through the act when it was interrupted. You see, God sees the heart. That's what we have to make sure we understand. God sees your heart. He knows your intent of the heart. That's where sin starts. That's where rebellion starts. But that's also where faith starts. And so God knew that Abraham would have done exactly what he told him to do. And of course, God withheld his hand. And a key point here, it wasn't so much that Abraham was willing to do this. It was his faith that God would somehow, if the act were to take place, God would somehow figure it out. And we need to understand that when we're being tested and tried and we're in drowning, God's going to figure it out. You stay and be obedient. God will come through with his promise. See, God didn't want a human sacrifice. That's not the God we serve. And if you're thinking, well, Jesus was human. No, Jesus was fully human, but he was also fully God. This isn't in the same category. God wants a heart that when tested, even to the point of sacrificing what is most precious or familiar to you, he wants that heart to spill over into obedience and action. 1 Samuel 15, 22, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Well, you're probably saying, well, this is great, Pat, but I don't really know if I... I want to go there. I mean, I'm happy where the faith I'm at right now. You know, this is great. I believe in Christ and things are going good and all that. You know, if I get this Abrahamic faith, what's God going to test me with? I crumble at even the thought of having to take such an incredible step of faith. Well, see, the good news to that is, like with your muscles, strength always precedes growth. Strength always comes before growth. The stronger your faith gets through testing, the larger your faith grows. And the bigger, more effective, and more blessed you will be from the testing that you're going through and the future tests that you will get. And there's a sort of that application, right? Of God doesn't give you, he doesn't tempt you more than what you're able. And that's obviously in the negative sense in, in, terms, of, in terms of sin. He doesn't give you more than you can able. He always gives you a way out to escape. But it's the same with the testing in the positive sense. He's not going to throw a thousand pounds on the bar on your first day in the gym. That's not what God does. He doesn't want to crush you and defeat you. He wants to develop you and prosper you according to his will. And so big calling, big testing. This is how faithful our God is. We wouldn't want it any other way. 
We wouldn't want God to zap us with the required faith. Oh, yeah, I have it now. This is great. Now, he initially gives their salvific faith, right? So he initially gives you that faith at your conversion through his own grace and power. But the vehicle that carries you to the completion of your salvation and how it keeps growing and growing and growing is the testing of your faith, your sanctification. And it happens again and again. You can't escape it. And age doesn't matter, by the way. He completes the work in you through a series of tests which grow and expand your faith more and more. Now, there is a painful aspect of testing as well. See, God doesn't only just test us to grow us directly. A lot of times it's a combo. It's a one-two punch. He'll give us that test to grow us, but also to put his finger on sin and weakness in our life. If you have an, for instance, if you have an issue with anger, God isn't going to allow you to suppress it. Always. He wants you to give it to him. He wants you to get rid of it. The Bible says to put off anger, right? And the anger of man does not bring forth the righteousness of God. So he will bring you tests in that area so you could deal with it and eradicate it. Same with lust. If you have an issue with lust, God isn't going to let that sit just because you're being faithful to your spouse. No, he wants to eradicate that. That's part of the flesh that needs to get crucified. And so it goes with all the works of the flesh, selfishness, greed, everything. He will work on us. We all have all these things because of our sinful nature. We're all at different places. And God is faithful that he is going to give us that mirror during the test. And he's going to reveal these hidden weaknesses and sins. This is what James means. It strengthens us, right? In James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, God often demands an extraordinary amount of faith from his people. And of course, again, this is subjective. A small matter of faith for one could be a large matter for the other. But despite how little, it's important to God. And I encourage you to trust him no matter what. If he gives you the test, have faith to endure it. Act on it. He will be with you through it, and he will give you the blessing after it. Know that he will hasn't, and he will never leave you during the test. He may be, you may think he's gone, just read the Psalms. Okay, but that's part of the test. He doesn't forsake us, he revives us. What does the Psalm say in 138? He revives us in the midst of trouble. He doesn't take us from trouble. He puts us sometimes and allows us to get into trouble. And he's right there along with us, testing us, reviving us. No, Lord, I can't take it. Ah! And then he pulls us up, gives us a breath, and back down under the water. And it pulls us up. And then until the work is complete. This is, this, I'm not preaching a cupcake sort of easy believism. This is what happens. We could talk about, yeah, it's so great. But, but we need to understand that because of the joy that we have in Christ, because of what Jesus did, who is our ultimate example, how can we expect to just skate on through? 
So, when it mattered the most, Abraham was clutch. He, he came through with that victory. Now, this whole chapter is about saints from the past who were, in fact, clutch. When, when it mattered the most, they took a step up. They took action, despite, as we're going to read, even losing their own life. And, and you can go on in Hebrews, and it doesn't get any easier. It's, it, it becomes very, very hard to read, especially as an American Christian, where we don't experience the physical persecution like most of them did during this time, and many do around the world. Well, I may have misquoted before. I guess maybe the best example of the test in the Bible may not be Abraham. I believe maybe it would be Christ himself. There's no better proof of God's faithfulness during difficult testing than what Jesus Christ went through during his life and finally at the cross of Calvary. Of course, Abraham is a type of God the Father giving his only begotten son as a sacrifice for sin. Isaac is a type of Christ. And the wood on his back points to the wooden cross, excuse me, on Jesus' back. You read the Gospels, Jesus passed many tests and temptations, and he passed them all with flying colors. But if you, if you look and you read about his experience in the garden, this was the greatest test that he endured right before he goes to the cross. And people, this is the key. If, you've, if you haven't heard anything, hear this. If you want to pass the test, here's the secret right here. Be like Christ and say, not my will, but your will be done. That's the hardest phrase, I believe, in all the Bible. We kick and scream. We put little parentheses in there. Not my will, but some of my will. But your will, but not all of it, be done. No, we have to settle the issue. George Mueller, in Answers to Prayer, says nine-tenths of the difficulties that Christians experience are overcome when their hearts are ready to do the Lord's will, whatever it is. See, if we would just say, not my will, but your will be done, and get rid of all the buts, and get rid of all the fears, and get rid of all the what-ifs, and stop connecting all the dots, and we just say, your will be done, like Jesus did, then we will get through that test, and we will be happy as the breakers come over us, as the waves come over us. We know that they are God's. See, Jesus was doing the will of the Father, and that is the golden key. And so, with that said, we're going to take communion or the Lord's Supper. And this should bring us right back, as Jesus says, as we consider the greatest trial of Christ. We look to this meal and we celebrate it by looking back at what Jesus did for us. Now, if you don't know the gospel, the gospel is the visible or actually this is a visible presentation of the gospel. The bread represents his body that was punished as a criminal. Jesus didn't just go to the cross. He endured the trial that we all have to, that we should have all endured. Standing before the judge, he endured, he, he endured the punishment, the flogging, 
the mockery, the shame, the desertion of his friends. So that way he could do God's will. And there was that cost that we have to consider when we look back. But this meal also causes us to look forward. It should catapult us forward to what his death and resurrection means, not only to us now, but to the future. It is a sign and seal of our salvation that God gives us according to his grace. And so when we partake in this, it's a spiritual nourishment. There's all sorts of views about the Lord's Supper in Christianity. You know, there's the transubstantiation where Jesus actually becomes the bread and the wine, which we, we don't believe is biblical. There's middle ground. You know, Luther had his view. Calvin had his view. And there's a bunch of views in between. Many churches just say, hey, just, you know, if you're not, if you're not a believer and you take it, it doesn't mean anything. Well, I don't agree with that because, you know, Paul gave us a very stark warning. He said, whoever, in 1 Corinthians 11, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And so don't start to get panicky and, oh, you know, what am I, you know, yesterday I did this or this. It's, it's an unworthy manner. It means that we're, we're not feeling that this is necessarily real. We take it lightly. We don't truly consider that we're partaking of Christ in his sufferings, in his new life. And so as before we partake, there are many of you here are, are, are fine. You're saying, yes, you know, I'm, I have a clean conscience with the Lord. I believe. And so you're welcome to partake. We don't restrict anyone here, but I encourage you to examine yourself, as Paul says, and make sure that heart is right. And if you decide to pass on, nobody looks at you, nobody judges you, nobody condemns you. And that's called fencing the table. Because it does, it is a spiritual grace, what God does. There's a, if, if it wasn't spiritual, and if it didn't mean anything, it wouldn't be there. So we need to take it serious accordingly. So what we're going to do is I'm going to ask uh, Hubert to come on up. We're going to pass out the elements. I'd ask Mary Beth if she can come up as well. And just hang on to them. And after we pass them out, um, I'll come back up 